Last week, we looked at the eighth plague that God brought upon Egypt, the plague of locusts. In the Middle East, locusts were one of the most frightful prospects for any nation to face. They were so destructive to food supplies. The Egyptians had recently had half their crops wiped out from hail. If locusts came, there would certainly be widespread poverty and famine. But Pharaoh would not humble himself. In fact, in response to the fear of his advisors who told him, hey, come on, do something for change, he tried to bargain with God again rather than just obey. Pharaoh offered that the men may go, but the herds and the flocks and the little children of the Hebrews would be held hostage against the return of the men. Man does not bargain with God. And the locusts did come. And the scripture says that nothing green was left in all the land once the locusts moved through. The future was looking bleak for Egypt. The principle that I think we could clearly draw from the text involved the nature of true worship. When we approach God, as we would like to this morning, the creator of the universe and everything in it, including you and including me, we bring before him all that we are and all that we have in everything that is precious to us. We bow our hearts before God, recognizing that he has given us all things. So we start with thanksgiving. And all things are to be brought to the foot of his throne with that thanksgiving, with adoration and with a humble reception of his mercy and his grace. We enter the presence of the Lord with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. I've entitled today's message, I don't know if it's going to come up there, Timothy. I've really got creative this week. I called it the ninth plague, darkness. Yeah, for those of you that have followed the series, you can tell how creative I've gotten with this title. And we're going to take our reading from Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 29. So if you will read that together with me, this is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go along with you. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God, and even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. 
Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our simple request this morning as we humbly bow our hearts before you is an understanding of your word to us this morning. We thank you for all of the blessings you have given to us physically and the spiritual blessings in Christ that are eternal. Guide us into your truth this morning as we look into your word with humble hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The battle between light and darkness is a common theme throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. There is a deeply rooted Hebrew or Jewish concept comparing God with light, an idea that arises repeatedly as we read the scriptures. This idea has flowed from the Old Testament writings into the New Testament writings, which also were primarily written by Jews, and therefore even into our culture today. We talk about shining the light of truth on something, or studying history like the Dark Ages, which weren't as dark as we've been led to believe, by the way. We call them the Middle Ages now. We talk about the light of knowledge, and we symbolize this by a candle at graduation ceremonies where we pass the light of knowledge to the next generation. And we talk about the darkness of evil. In darkness, we find confusion, chaos, fear, and the unknown. In the light, though, we find clarity, order, stability, and knowledge. In addition to being a description of what God was doing in the physical universe so long ago, the early verses of Genesis 1 give us a description of God's very nature. The first three verses of the Bible read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Notice the relationship between darkness and the words without form and void. The ancient concept portrayed by these words is a swirling, chaotic, lifeless place, devoid of usefulness and devoid of purpose. Darkness was on the face of the deep, God's word says. The deep, it's an interesting concept it's in scripture. It's the same language used for the abyss, which the demons begged Christ not to send them to, and the bottomless pit that the Gospels talk about and which the book of Revelation talks about. The ruler there, Revelation tells us, is Abaddon or Apollyon, which just mean destruction. It is the turbulent ocean, unpredictable and uncontrollable, a place of fear where nothing is certain and nothing is known, like Mike was telling us about where he works. 
but the Spirit of God enters the scene. And God's first words are, let there be light. God's presence, God's word brings order, brings potential for good and potential for life. These first few words are magnificent beyond any of our comprehension. There is nothing even remotely close in any other ancient literature. In all other creation accounts from ancient literature, the darkness and the chaos is described as a battle between gods, some of them good, some of them evil, resulting in the need for some sort of resolution. But not in Genesis. God simply speaks light into existence. Let there be light. These first few verses of Genesis are by far, and it's not even close, the most examined words in the history of all written literature. They have become so familiar to us that we sometimes fail to appreciate how profound these words are. Where God is, there is light. There is order and there is purpose and hope and life. Where God chooses to withhold his special presence, where his face does not shine, there is only darkness. There is confusion, chaos, fear, and death. This is why when a society, any society, expels gods from the universities and the schools, when it expels God from the government and courts, and it expels God from homes and businesses, darkness increases. And it's not just a benign darkness like, oh, it's dark in here, I think I'll go to bed. It's a darkness that can be felt. God's word tells us that with darkness comes chaos, confusion, fear, violence, purposelessness, hopelessness, and eventually death. In the absence of God's presence and in the absence of the light of his truth will come unmistakable and undeniable consequences wherever the darkness spreads. This is why over the past couple of years, when the churches have been shuttered, Suicide rates among young people have gone up 400%. You close out the light, and there's going to be darkness. But praise God, the reverse is also true. The prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 60, verses 1 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your coming. There's hope. There's hope if we look to the light. To add to this, Isaiah writes of Messiah in chapter 49, verse 6, It is too small a thing 
that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God is saying, do you know what? I'm sending a Messiah, but it's too small of a job for him to merely redeem Israel. I'm going to make him a salvation to the ends of the earth. And he will bring the light even to you and I. Paul himself quoted this very passage in Isaiah 49 to the Gentiles when he was speaking in Acts chapter 13 when he was in Antioch. And it made the Jews angry, but it gave hope to everyone else. Everyone else in Antioch, it said, flocked to hear the words of Paul when the Jews threw him out of the synagogue. It was like, there's hope for us too. There's light for us too. Yes, Paul says, it's too small a thing for God to save merely this little bit. He's offering salvation to all. And speaking of the Apostle Paul, what do we learn of this light from the New Testament? Shortly after Christ's birth, Zacharias prophesied over the baby Jesus. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Mike, it's not impossible that God will bring light to that place. That's why Christ came. When Christ was a child as well, Simeon likewise prophesied, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The Apostle John, whose gospel begins with the words, in the beginning, he's, he's taking your mind to the first words of Genesis. He says, in the beginning, just like Genesis said. And then he goes on to say this of Jesus Christ. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Later, Jesus spoke of himself saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 writes this, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, 
but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. Now listen carefully. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Before the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shone in our lives, in the face of Jesus Christ, our lives were formless and void. We may not have thought so, but upon reflection we know so. It was, our lives were ruled by darkness, which manifested in our lives chaos, confusion, and fear. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 5. For you were once darkness. Who's he writing to? Christians. You were once darkness. But that's not the end of the verse. But now you are light in the Lord. What are we to do about that? Walk as children of light. And what about the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2? But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And then finally, the Apostle John, late in his life as an elderly man, wrote the following. This is the message which we have heard from him, from Jesus, and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I think the most profound of all of these scriptures, maybe just because I can't fully understand them, but they are so moving. The words of Christ in Matthew 6, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore, and this is the part that is so profound, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's as if Christ is saying, you're walking around thinking you're in the sunshine of light, and yet all it is is darkness. Can you imagine how dark it is when you think that darkness is actually light? Why would you go looking for light if you think you're in it? That's a deep darkness. God could have created the entire universe and everything in it, just like that, in one moment of time. But he chose for our benefits, to use a process, beginning with the creation of light out of darkness, to teach mankind the nature of his character, the nature of saving grace, the marvelous transformation that takes place 
when Christ moves into the life of the one who believes on him and the hope of eternity, which can only come through God's miraculous creative act, replacing darkness and death, preparing and bringing us to light and life. In our passage from Exodus today, it is appropriate that this plague of darkness occurred just before the final plague of the death of the firstborn in which the Passover was instituted by the Lord. The plague of darkness was not only a culmination of all the other eight plagues that had come before it, but it was also an indicator of the light of the lamb that would be slain for the salvation of God's people. God's first great word in making order was to say, let there be light. Now, in our text today, we can almost imagine a corresponding word of judgment against Pharaoh and Egypt. Let there be no light. I don't know, I don't know about you, I find this plague of darkness to be the most troubling in my heart if I imagine myself back in those days. Yeah, the other ones were hard, physically, but darkness and darkness and darkness. If Pharaoh and the Egyptians wanted to live in spiritual darkness, apart from God, God would give them a physical manifestation of the condition of their hearts and minds. Utter darkness. But the Passover was coming. And with it, the death of what God's people were leaving behind. And the entrance of the hope of deliverance, redemption, and life. Well, I haven't even started on my outline yet, just as I had warned you. So we better get going. God gives this ninth plague without any warning. Verses 21 through 23. This is the third and final time God brings a plague upon Egypt with no prior warning. He did this for plague three, which was lice, plague six, which was boils, and now plague nine, which is darkness. I'm sure those with greater insight than mine could discern the significance of these three plagues, but suffice it to say, Pharaoh's broken promises and false repentance earned him this frightening judgment. He was receiving payment. He was receiving the wages of his pride. God sends a darkness, it says, which may even be felt. Those are interesting words. We, um, it can be interpreted that the darkness is just so thick and heavy and it, maybe you can even almost feel it like a blanket. Um, it, there's other ways to see it, but the words are powerful. This is a darkness that God had sent. This was no normal darkness. Light is not only a physical property, it is an aspect of God's character, as we have just read in various scriptures. In judgment, God can withdraw his presence so significantly that the remaining emptiness is darkness which may even be felt, as it were. Without the light of God, mankind merely gropes in darkness. 
that's the other meaning that sometimes uh, translators take. It, it's darkness that we can only find our way around by groping and grasping. We don't see. And I think it's important to notice that darkness isn't a thing in and of itself. Darkness is a privation of light. In other words, we measure how dark a place is by measuring how little light there is in that place. We don't fill a room with darkness by shutting off the light. We simply stop the light by flicking a switch or closing the blind. Because darkness and light cannot coexist. We call it darkness because of the convenience of language, but darkness is merely a description of the absence of light. And I think the same could be said spiritually. We've all been in a dark room. Depending on the window coverings and how much moonlight or starlight is penetrating into the room, we can see some vague shapes, which tends to get our imagination going, doesn't it? That's a whole nother sermon. We also know that our eyes adjust to the darkness in a room so that if we give ourselves a minute or two staring into the dark, we can begin to make out more and more details. I think all of you have experienced this at some point. But I think what was happening in Egypt was a miraculous darkness. There are caves you can visit in different parts of the world where there is total darkness, or at least as close as one can get to total darkness. There's one I found in, in Vietnam that is six kilometers deep. You can actually go and visit it. Um, I, I'll show you a picture of it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you might appreciate that. People have described, people that have visited there have described it as being so dark that you cannot tell whether your eyelids are open or not. So people will say it's disconcerting because your eyes are open, but you think they're closed, and so you go like this. It, it, it's truly, it throws everything for a loop, but that's how dark it is. That's, that's true darkness. There have been attempts by some to ascribe the darkness of the ninth plague to a sandstorm caused by a hot westerly wind that was known to the Egyptians at that time and even now, but naturalistic explanations do not seem to meet the criteria of the text in describing the severity and the intensity of this darkness. Verse 23 says that people didn't see one another or leave their homes. If you hold to a more naturalistic explanation, that's fine. But it seems to me that this is a supernatural removal of light, unlike any of the Egyptians had ever experienced before or since. By the darkness of the ninth plague, God not only wished to reprimand the blindness of Pharaoh's mind, but in every way to convince him how senseless and misguided he was in his resistance to God and his command. The darkness God sent was a darkness of groping and grasping. God is giving all of us, I think, 
a picture of what it is to live life outside of the life of Christ. Jesus himself describes those that reject his offer of salvation as being cast ultimately into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth and not just three days, three days of which was already driving the Egyptians mad if you read over in Psalm 79, I believe. But forever and ever and ever. But the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. It is this phrase at the end of verse 23 that have made some readers think that the Egyptians maybe weren't even able to light a candle or a lamp to give them some light in their homes. This may have been the case. I don't know. If God removed all light, that may have been the case. I don't think the text forces us into believing that. Um, I don't know. Uh, but verse 23 seems, to, seems more to be saying that the darkness was so pervasive that the Egyptians did not leave their homes to see their neighbors or to go to work or anything of the sort. Normal life was shut down because of the darkness. Like December or January in Vanderhoof. Except worse. Imagine how the Egyptian farmers must have felt knowing they needed to get some kind of crop into the ground right away after the locust had swept through to have any hope of food in the near future. But the darkness would not allow it. They would have to sit and wait, having no idea when the darkness might ease. But the Hebrews had light. When God made this difference, between the Hebrews and the Egyptians, who would not have preferred the poor cottage of an Israelite slave to the fine palace of an Egyptian? In the same way, Christian homes ought to be glimmers of heavenly brightness on this dark earth. And even though the light down here is sometimes dimmed or blocked by our disobedience or lack of obedience. The light that ought to be shining in our Christian homes is a heavenly light. And up there, it does not suffer any dimness. It is an eternal beacon of hope from which we can draw the light of our homes. I asked myself this question this week. Why did the Israelites stay? They had light. The Egyptians didn't. The Egyptians couldn't do anything. The Israelites could have packed their stuff. They wouldn't have had to ask. They could have packed their stuff up and they could have left. Have you ever wondered why they didn't take advantage of the darkness and leave? I understand that Moses was their leader and the one through whom God was directing the Hebrews. But why didn't God use the darkness to lead his people to flee the land? while the Egyptians could do nothing about it. They wouldn't have even had to ask Pharaoh. They could have just left. God could have done this if, it, if he had been pleased to do so, but it did not please him to do so. God would bring them out with a mighty hand, not by stealth or by secret, 
God had promised Moses that Pharaoh would eventually drive them out of Egypt and God would keep his word. God's deliverance is not to be hidden, but open and in the light so that those in darkness may see and know. Beginning in verse 24 through to the end of the chapter, we see Pharaoh's last bargain or attempted bargain with Moses and God. Pharaoh is running out of food. He's running out of support. He's running out of excuses. And he's running out of time. He is beginning to feel the futility in maintaining his power struggle against the Almighty. He has persisted thus far with pride and rebellion, but he is reaching the limit every tyrant reaches when they kick against the truth. What is his bargain? Keep something back. One of the frustrations, this isn't in my notes, but events have unfolded that forced me to say this. One of the frustrations of every minister, every person that gets to stand before a congregation and minister the word of God, is the appreciation one receives in the moment as people say, that was a that was a good message. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. I really felt as though God illumined the scriptures to me today. And then to see that there has been absolutely no change in the person's life. I think every minister, I think every minister experiences this. You sort of pour yourself into God's word and hope somehow that he's going to use you and his word to minister to the hearts of people to transform their lives. But a person can go years and years and years and years and see no difference whatsoever, or at least no perceptible difference. And it is heartbreaking. Having said that, I'm going to challenge you anyway this morning. And not just you, I'm going to challenge myself. What's Pharaoh's bargain? Just keep something back. Something. Anything. In the depth of the darkness covering Egypt, Pharaoh says to Moses, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Go ahead, go. Go. Just keep your flocks here. With this, Pharaoh made his last offer to Moses. He will allow the people of Israel to go into the wilderness, even the children, but they must leave their livestock behind. Something. The feast to be held in the wilderness is altogether a new thing to the Hebrews. The people would only be told what to do when they got to the place to serve God. That is, when they got to Sinai. It can be easy for us to forget that God had not yet detailed the instructions and, and, and uh, yeah, detailed the instructions for the Israelites' worship once they got to that place. God would do this in the last half of the book of Exodus and 
all of the book of Leviticus. But at this point here in, in Exodus chapter 10, all the Hebrews would have known is that animal sacrifice would have been involved. That's, that's the limit of what they would have known. The depth of the warning of Pharaoh's final attempt to bargain with God cannot be overstated. What is Pharaoh's last-ditch effort in keeping the people in bondage, held hostage to Pharaoh in Egypt? Only let your flocks and herds be kept back. Very significantly, Pharaoh immediately adds that they can even take their children. Keep that in your minds. How many souls are caught in this snare? They have left their money, their business, their work, and their worldly interests down in Egypt, the Old Testament type of this world. There is a chain then tying them back. Pharaoh knew that if he only controlled their possessions, he would get them and their children back eventually. It was only a matter of time. And it would be as if the Hebrews had never left. Just leave something behind. Two mites. Anything. Just leave it behind. Leave it in the world so that it niggles at your mind. No doubt, this is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then in the next verse, verse 21, Jesus tells us why he has just given them this instruction. And this is, this is the center point of today's message. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I'm asking all of us to consider these two questions. Number one, what is your treasure? Number two, where is it? One commentator wrote, I think when Satan sees a Christian go out of Egypt with all his flocks and herds, he has no hope of getting him back again. So he makes a last stand here. Keep your business and your religion separate. Give yourself to God, but do not consecrate your property. What was Moses' answer? Not a hoof shall be left behind. Not one. The Lord God and the prophet Moses representing him was absolutely unwilling to compromise. God wanted deliverance for all of Israel and for all that belonged to Israel and was not willing to deal on the point. If it were unnecessary to take it all, God wouldn't have demanded it in the beginning. 
Should the Christian not be genuinely able to say this, when I gave myself to the Lord, I gave him everything I had. He asks me to provide for honest things in the sight of all men and to care for my family, and I will, but I am not my own, for I am bought with a price, and therefore everything I have or ever shall have belongs to the Lord, that I may use it as his steward at his discretion and at his bidding. Talked a little bit about that in Sunday school this morning. What's Pharaoh's response to Moses? Pharaoh has nothing left. In exasperation, Pharaoh ordered Moses out and told him never to come back. As it will always be with those that are overwhelmed by the truth, whose lies are exposed, those who are facing complete loss and yet maintain their rebellion and pride, their final solution is always the same, anger. The reply of Moses is simple and dignified. And I think if I were Pharaoh at that time, it would have been incredibly intimidating. Because Moses doesn't lose his cool, not yet. We'll read that in the next chapter. He just says, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Well, that could mean a lot of things, couldn't it? God's words with Pharaoh were ended. Morgan writes, Pharaoh was now beyond reason and God did not reason with him. So ends every rebellion against the Lord. Men may refuse to submit. They may mock. They may feign a change of heart. They may lie. They may compromise and they may bargain. But this is God with whom they are dealing. In the end, those who persist in their pride will fall. Like Pharaoh, they will lose everything and end up with no other option than frustration and anger and the worst was yet to come. Folks, God is already won. The victory has been secured at the cross of Christ and the receipt for eternal life confirmed at his resurrection. The only question that remains is if we will continue in our pride like Pharaoh or join the mixed multitude exiting the bondage of Egypt with the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we are a people that desire to dwell in the light. And I think all men might even say that. But Lord, you have asked everything of us because you have given everything to secure our salvation in Christ. And you have done it because you love us, because it will bring us fulfillment and joy and blessing and peace and eternal life. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the blindness that we love sometimes and cling to 
so that we don't have to see the light shining into the dark corners of our lives. And it's hard for us to even pray and ask these things because we recognize that you are faithful and that where you dwell, there is light. Father, give us the courage to move forward in the light. Give us, by your word, a light to our feet that as we move, we are not groping and grasping in the darkness of the unknown, but walking in the confidence of faith in Christ, in whom there dwells no darkness at all, no shadow of turning. And so we ask that you would move in our hearts this morning, not to be hearers of the word only, but doers. Thank you for this time together in your word, which is so powerful, so revealing. It itself is a light shining into our lives, and we are grateful for it. And it's in Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.